We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's notion.com slash squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Today's podcast is an archive episode of Intelligence Squared, first broadcast in February 2022. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On the show today, Carl Eric Fisher, the clinician and writer on the history of addiction, his own struggles with alcohol, and how we can all perhaps better approach the issue in the future. Carl Eric Fisher is a psychiatrist, bioethicist, and a recovering alcoholic who has spent years tracing the history of addiction. Carl is a professor of clinical psychiatry at Columbia University, and his recent book, The Urge, Our History of Addiction, is not only a sweeping study of the evolution of the condition, but also a call for a more expansive, nuanced, and compassionate perspective on its treatment. Our host today is the science broadcaster, author, and physicist, Helen Chersky. Here's Helen with more. Carl, thank you very, very much for joining us. So this book is a history of addiction, although it's got a focus on your own country, which is America. And you say right at the start that addiction isn't just a medical issue. It's about identity and power, commerce and fear. And then at the end, you say that addiction is profoundly ordinary. And the, you know, that's an amazing combination because it makes it clear that we, we can't avoid this. You know, we can't it's complicated, but we have to deal with it because it's ordinary. So we've got loads of things to discuss today. And I want to start with a question, and I know it's a hard question because you've basically written a whole book about it, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Just to start us off, what is addiction? Thank you, Helen. And thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. And I should say also, I have a little bit of a runny nose, so you might see me sniffle 
and wipe. But uh, you're right. It's a very difficult question. And almost in a way, the starting point of the book is what is this thing that we call addiction? I think most people have an intuitive sense. And the statistics are overwhelming that the majority, sometimes maybe even the vast majority of people have a personal experience of addiction within themselves or within their families. So people have a sense that addiction is real. It's profoundly dangerous and really mystifying that it seems to run against everything that you were just discussing in that lovely intro about rational agency and self-control, these things that we, we hold to such a high regard. And so when I was in early recovery from addiction myself, while also in a psychiatric training program, I was interested in that question, like, what is addiction? What exactly had gone wrong in me? And the medical literature was extremely helpful to me. We could talk about some of the ways later. And also the research literature was very helpful to me. And also the profusion of definitions, of theories, of models didn't add that much in a way they... they detracted from my understanding. So some people uh, say addiction is continued use despite negative consequences. I find that deeply unsatisfying. I, it sort of works in a way, but you could also say that when I, I snack on too much chocolate at the end of the night, that's continued use despite negative consequence. I don't think that that's chocolate addiction. Addiction traditionally has meant something more powerful, has meant losing some element of power losing some agency or choice or self-control. So I, uh, you could tell I'm already giving you a weaselly answer to your question. I'm not, I'm not giving you a clear one. I like something along the lines of the way the word addiction first entered the English language around 500 years ago, when it was a strong devotion that took away will. And around that time, which of note, the word addiction was wrapped up in the, these early English Protestant theological writings, it was a notion that was deeply wound up in these confusions about choice and agency and self-control, but it wasn't a condition that happened to you. It was something that involved some element of choice, albeit disordered choice, and that it could be positive as well, that you could have a positive devotion to something like prayer or to study or something like that. So you know, I'll give you a direction rather than a, a firm answer, and the direction is around that mystery of powerlessness and the, the way that choice and self-control breaks down. And, and it's probably also important to say at the start that one of the things you say right at the start of the book is that the word addict, describing people as addicts, is, is not helpful. Would you, would you just give us a set that, set that out for us? There are many people who identify as addicts. I myself, if I go to a mutual help recovery meeting, I say I'm Carl and I'm an alcoholic. So I, I think there are ways that the noun form of addict gives people a sense of identity and inclusion and can be helpful. But when we as medical professionals or policymakers or just people engaged in public communication are talking about third parties who suffer from addiction, today the preferred terminology is person with addiction to use what's called person first language, much in the same way that we don't call people autistics in the noun form of people with autism. And just like the autism example brings up, there, there's a diversity of perspectives on this issue. And there are, in fact, some autism advocates who say that's ridiculous. Just <laughs> I prefer to call myself an autistic person. So, you know, language is constantly evolving and reflective of the, the stigma and biases and stereotypes of the time. But the, the utility, I think, of, of being conscious, at least, of that move toward person-first language is that someone's identity as a person with addiction 
is not all encompassing. It's not the the sum total of who they are. It's not the singular thing that defines their existence or their worth or lack thereof as a human being. I just I want I wanted to make that clear because I think that it's very important that you, it's not something I think it's you don't put things upon people as you said you know there's a, there's a distinction between how people self identify and how others describe them without that knowledge. Now the book it, it, you go through a, a very broad series of examples going right right back to the beginning of written history and one of the things that comes out of it apart from the fact that we really haven't done very well in dealing with addiction which we might get to later, we will get to later, is that there's this, you paint this picture of people insisting throughout history on, on it, insisting that it's simple in some way. It's got a simple cause, you know, you're just not disciplined enough, or it only happens to good people or bad people, or, you know, there's this, there's this desperation almost to say, oh, it's just this. Why, why are we so keen to simplify it? And why doesn't it work? I think that like, like addiction itself, that impulse to look for a single simple cause for a complex social problem is just part of the human condition. Why exactly? I, I think that's a <laughs> that's an eternal and complex question. A lot of it does revolve around fear. Much of the book, as you know, revolves around not just individual people's experiences of addiction, but also the experience of drug epidemics, which I was surprised to learn goes back 500 years to... Uh, again, European experiences with 1500s, 1510s, 1520s of tobacco. In those times, people had all sorts of varieties of ways of understanding why tobacco seemed epidemical, to use the word of the time, or as a plague intolerable. And the fear that can arise in the wake of these types of drug epidemics has, has always led to simplistic answers that have only seized on one part of the problem, maybe beneficial in a limited sense, but often harmful on, on balance. So I, I think it's really important when one of the key messages of the book is to keep in mind a multi-level and complex and ultimately humble view of addiction, that we need all of these different explanations from the biological, from the personal, from the humanistic, the community level, the social. And in a way, the, the, the responses that we see to addiction, things like regulation, but also mutual help even tending toward a spiritual or at least existential recovery from addiction. All of these things combine together to create a, a sort of pluralistic understanding of addiction. I think it, just to do that, just to do the unwinding of the single simple explanations would be a tremendous advance. Well, you, I mean, your own personal history, which you write about in the book is, I mean, you know, it, it, I think it's particularly powerful because if you look at your website or the back of the book, you know, you're clearly an overachiever in life, right? <laughs> you're very good at lots of things. You're a very competent person. You've got all these degrees in things and, you know, there's a whole list of awards and prizes and things like that on your website, which is great. But then you also make it clear that you suffered from addiction, that this is not a thing that happens, you know, by your own example, almost, you make it clear that this is not a thing that happens to people who have somehow gone wrong in other ways. Yeah, maybe that's an oversimplification in itself, but you were the, possibly one of the most educated people about this and it still happened to you. And how much did it help or hinder you actually studying it while it was happening to you? It cut both ways for certain. And that, that overachievement and that constant unremitting drive for external validation was... A major part of my denial, in a way, it was part of my 
a self-imposed idea of myself and who I was supposed to be that allowed me to say, I'm not a person with addiction. It's not, you know, clearly if I can graduate with honors from Columbia University Medical School, that shows that I'm okay. And it actually mirrored the, you know, the causes of any person's addiction, including my own, are complex and multifaceted in line with what we were just talking about. So I don't, I want to be clear that it wasn't that my parents somehow taught me to be someone with addiction and it's not their fault. But one influence was I saw that same process happening in my parents where my mother was a university professor and my father had a severe problem with alcohol. She also had a problem with alcohol, but then defined her identity almost in opposition to her. So while I was in medical school and residency, I did the, the exact same thing. I did the exact same thing where I said, through this frantic activity, I will prove to others, but especially to myself, that I'm okay. And those types of identity considerations, I think, are often missed in addiction, which is part of why I wanted to bring some of that element of seeking after status or acclaim or positive external validation like you just gave me. It can be one and the same with addiction. Uh, Augustine of Hippo, an early Christian theologian, said essentially the exact same thing. I was stunned when I came across that in his confessions. He saw a drunken beggar on the street, and then he was also agonizing over a speech that he had to give, a public appearance. He wanted to sound smart. He wanted to sound like he had it all together. And he noticed that there, there was an addictive quality at his own mind grasping after the need to show everyone that he was okay and to, to achieve and to get on to the next stage in his life. And so that's one example of how I think these, these elements are one and the same. There's addiction in all of us. And if it is in substances, then it's going to be something like that. Status, money, acclaim, power, sex, consumerism, whatever. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation 
of George Orwell's classic. 1984 was pretty cool. And I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents with the code squared. Simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. We'll come to the individual in a, again in a second, but one of the things that was very striking in the book was that you picked up on examples of this being not just about the individual, but about society and power, things like tea and opium, where the existence of addiction was used as a, as a control method, basically, knowingly. And, and that hasn't necessarily stopped today. And, and so I just wondered if you briefly, briefly describe, you know, what the opium wars were all about. Because I think, I think that's a quite interesting example. Yeah. And, and then we'll go on from there. Yeah. The opium wars are so fascinating because I, I think coming from the States, we have this notion that it was a British thing. But in researching the history, the, the US was so enmeshed in the commercial interests going on there. And it's a complex, multiple year, there are multiple wars so just to distill it, I'll focus on one particular element of the opium wars, which was the notion of the danger, the supposed danger of the drug was later applied to China to say that, oh, China was brought low. It used to be this amazing, powerful dynasty. And then in the middle of the 19th century, it, it fell into decline because of opium. And there are a lot of contemporary historians who think that the causality is is wrong there, that the direction runs in the in the opposite, that uh, it was actually British and also American commercial interests that desperately wanted to force open Chinese markets to largely British opium grown in a British imperial South Asia. So the, the, in the process of forcing open Chinese markets caused massive poverty, dislocation, warfare, trauma. And then in the wake of that disruption, the Chinese people experienced a great deal of problems with opium. In the process, relevant to my country, uh, sending a lot of displaced people to the American West, where they worked on railroads and in gold mines and uh, in just urban areas and places like San Francisco. So it's a, it's a good test case. I'm glad you asked about it because it's a, good, it's a great example of how a stigmatized notion of a drug can be used as a weapon and wielded as a weapon when there really is no rational basis for it. We see that today where people fail to make the distinction between drug use, drug harms, and addiction. Those are three very important separate issues. And in most political initiatives in the States and in the UK, the, um, conflate them very, very readily so that uh, the notion of drugs as irreversibly powerful, uh, automatically addicting is a justification for much more deep-seated criminal legal policies and other forms of oppression. So just to, to clarify the situation with the, the East India Company, which was what, what, who were trading the opium, the, the British wanted Chinese goods, but they basically wanted to pay in opium instead of money. Yes. That was the problem. And then there's lots of opium floating around and there are consequences, but, but it comes from somebody basically wanting to trade. You know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a choice. It wasn't that, that they chose to have opium around. They tried to get rid of it. It was that the uh, there was the British East India Company insisted that they had it and and then you have all the consequences you've described. It is it's a really um it's a really depressing story. But then 
in in lots of ways many of the stories in your book are but the point is we can learn from them so you mentioned something there about you know how the the consequences but but going back to the individual this there's a question in here which we haven't really talked about yet which is is addiction a disease or a vice is this something that happens to you or is this a thing that is somehow your fault in some way or that you have agency and starting how does that because or is it because just the question of whether it's a disease is a difficult one right Mm -hmm. yes i I think the binary is misleading to say it's a disease or a vice and that's that's the binary that people have been sucking for a while going back at least to thomas trotter in the early 19th century who, who was actually quite firm on this particular distinction and, and a distinction that persisted throughout the 20th century to justify, uh, a, a, in my view, a very reductionistic version of calling addiction a disease. Uh, I worry about calling addiction a disease because I think it's a double-edged sword. It has benefits, which I readily acknowledge. Uh, to call addiction a disease has served as a, an important plank in advocacy efforts it helps to argue for insurance coverage or for hospitals to treat people with addiction, which for a good swath of the 20th century, they simply did not do, um, especially in the States. Uh, but at the same time, the notion of addiction as a disease has also been used sometimes by the very same people who are using it in a broader, flexible and more compassionate way. Uh, the, the negative version of addiction as a disease can be used to say uh, people with addiction are all invariably the same that uh, once an addict, always an addict, that your brain is irreversibly uh, destroyed or damaged or broken. And in particular, that uh, um, that use uh, inevitably proceeds to addiction, which connects to your last question. That sort of reductionistic notion of um, no open space between choice and control, like people get hijacked as if from uh, some external possessing agency, is a justification for punitive and ultimately counterproductive uh, wars on drugs. So what about the, so from a biochemical point of view, and again, all these are very complicated questions for all the reasons you've described, but in, in a, you know, with our understanding of better understanding, hopefully of brain chemistry and psychology and, and, you know, lots of those sorts of topics. What actually happens when someone is addicted to something? What's going on from a, a physical or mental point of view? Well, there's a few things going on. And I think an important point at the outset is that addiction is heterogeneous for a lot of the reasons that we just described. Um, but, uh, you know, we can speak generally based on some of the more um, well-established models of people with addiction, namely alcohol and opiates for certain historical reasons that I discuss in the book. Uh, so uh, there are physical consequences, meaning at the at the general body level, people tend to get uh, tolerance and withdrawal. Now, a, a distinction that's often missed is that in the case of stimulants like cocaine, we don't necessarily um, experience that. And I want to make that point because uh, for a lot of history, uh, physiological dependence 
has been conflated with addiction. Somebody would say, oh, I'm addicted to this because if I stop, then I get the shakes. Or if I stop, then I get the traditional goose flesh and um, cold turkey experience of stopping opioids. And um, it's a really, really misleading notion because uh, for some of the reasons we've just been discussing, people can have addictive relationships uh, not just to substances, but also to behaviors. Gambling addiction was one of the first examples I found in my research going back to 1000 BC. And you know, we know from research today that gambling addiction uh, has a huge toll, not just in terms of lives and, and families suffering, but even suicide. So you know, just to keep it brief, that's just one specific physiological example. Now, People debate about the the best ways to characterize the brain changes that happen in a person with addiction. I'll just say that you know the the molecule that most people know is dopamine, and dopamine is immensely powerful and important. Uh, I'll just say one myth that I think is uh, a, a bit dangerous, and try to offer a corrective that I think is is one kind of interesting nugget to consider, which is dopamine is traditionally associated with pleasure. That uh, if I look at social media and I get a bunch of fake internet hearts on my profile, then that that gives me a burst of pleasure. And the reason for that pleasure is dopamine. Uh, and the, the reality is that it's less about the pleasures of the feast and more about the pleasures of the hunt, to use one commonly employed phrase. The dopamine is more about salience, to use the jargon term, that it's more about uh, goal-directed activity and going after something. It's, a, it's more of a learning process, in other words, than it is about some sort of satiety or enjoyment or pleasure. And the reason that's important is uh, because these sort of cartoonish versions of uh, drugs as invariably producing a dopamine surge that leads to pleasure uh, feeds into this stigmatized and sort of um, stereotypical hedonistic notion of drug users as just people using for choice just because they like to get high and so forth and so on. You speak to somebody with a severe case of addiction, usually it's not enjoyable at all. They're they're fighting as hard as they can just to feel a shred of normalcy. And uh, past a certain point, the, the use, whether it's drugs or otherwise, uh, is not leading to any pleasure whatsoever. The, one of the examples that, one of the periods in history you talk about um, in the early 1900s, and, and it, you know, it happened in the UK and it happened in the US, different names, I think, but it was the temperance movement or prohibition, mm. you know, the various versions of the only way to deal with this is to stop it, all of it, make it go away now. And that doesn't work necessarily. Tell us a little bit about that and how, how, it, how it panned out in history. Because I think the important point here is learning the lessons of history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the temperance movement started as a temperance movement. I mean, you know, if you go to ancient Greek philosophy, temperance means moderation. <laughs> and that's how it started in the United States in, say, the 1820s. And it's a... It's sort of a fascinating uh, twist of history that temperance became associated with this hardcore extremist abstinence approach, which in the United States led to a congressional amendment and the you know famous era of prohibition. Uh, an interesting thing that I found was that the the first wave of temperance activism, which also had an international reach, 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, was much less focused on legal mechanisms. It was much less focused on this sort of technocratic top-down control of people's behavior. And it was more about people's attitudes about uh, the drug of alcohol, uh, which they very clearly saw as a drug back then, probably um, exaggerated, uh, whereas today we tend to see alcohol as not really a drug or a different sort of drug. So the, even just that is an interesting 
comparison. So uh, there, there are multiple waves. So the one historian classifies them in five different waves of temperance activism uh, reaching across the last couple of centuries. Uh, but the, the important thing is that people kept on coming at the problem from different angles. One of uh, medical approaches, prohibitionist approaches. There's some mutual help approaches preceding Alcoholics Anonymous and arising spontaneously, uh, but in a form surprisingly similar to Alcoholics Anonymous. And those also spread internationally. Uh, and um, uh, just like some of these other issues we've been talking about, whenever there was a single cause, a single angle or single historical response, it was already doomed to fail. The best results in terms of actually reducing the population's uh, drinking level in correcting harms was when there was a more, um, I almost want to say playful, but integrative, holistic, and um, multifaceted response to the problems of alcohol ep epidemics. And it's very striking that, especially as the examples, you know, as you go on through history, I guess, it's easier to find the social history, not just the the facts and the statistics, but you get people's reactions. And, and it's very clear that the community-based approaches are, you know, however however it comes about, if people feel part of a community, that is extremely helpful. Or as mm -hmm. you know, it's a major it's a major factor. It's not necessarily about what you do in that community; it's about having a community. Have I got that right? Yes, absolutely. And there are ways that um, governmental and medical and other policy responses have undercut those efforts toward community, sometimes by, say, um, advancing a, a pessimistic or um, a fatalistic notion of what addiction is. Uh, so temperance movements in the 19th century and the 20th century and today have promoted this notion that um, people are somehow broken and irredeemable and so we should focus more on prevention. But at other times, uh, say, for example, just within the case of alcoholic temperance movements, there is more of a... Um, interplay more of a conversation with these sort of bottom-up mutual help movements, uh, the, the sort of proto-Alcoholics uh, Anonymous uh, organizations. And I think there's, there's a lesson there because we've seen similar things in uh, the problem of opioid epidemics in the States in the 60s, 70s, and 1980s, um, and otherwise, that uh, uh, we're much stronger when we're together. We're much stronger when we can find ways of building bridges across these multiple responses, that medicine has a lot to offer there are a lot of ways that medicine can save lives, uh, but it's not just medicine and the, these grassroots community um, initiatives are very helpful too. I've got a couple more questions. And one of them is, you know, you, you've you dug into this topic, you've looked back in history, you've, you, what you depict in the book is almost cycles of failure repeating themselves in different ways. And it does get a bit better towards the end, but we're not doing very well at this. So having looked at the human history of addiction with different substances and different times and different cultures. What are the big lessons here? Like what, what can be different this time around in this cycle so that someone doesn't have to write another book like that in a hundred years time? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that, um, we'll never end addiction. So people will be writing books about it a hundred years from now, maybe under the same name, maybe under a different name, who knows? Uh, but I, I think, um, the notion that we could somehow escape from the cycles of history has worked against us in the process of responding to addiction. But there are examples when we, meaning both medicine and we, meaning human society, have done a better job at responding to addiction. Uh, two examples that come to mind are the um, 1870s, 1880s, where in the United States there was this broad-based, what they called it, an inebriety movement that was um, 
pluralistic and multidimensional in the ways I just described where medicine played nicely with mutual help groups and there was some element of regulation, but it wasn't overbearing total prohibitionist crackdowns. Uh, and then the, the 1960s in the U.S. were somewhat similar. Uh, so I, I, one of the lessons is that it can actually be quite pragmatic to keep in mind this this point that um, I appreciate you bringing up before, that we have a tendency to reach after single, simple solutions. They invariably fail. So the process of humility is not just a caution to say we don't know exactly what we're doing. It's a, it's a caution that gives us a route for action in the world. It gives us something to do today, which is to refrain from overly simplistic solutions and to look for ways of for example, in the level of medicine, personalizing care and getting out of a one-sized-fits-all treatment regime uh, at the level of uh, policy, recognizing that not all drugs are the same and that all, all drugs have costs, but also all drugs have benefits. And every human society on the face of the planet, as far as we can determine, has found a way to use drugs, has, has sought ways of altering and expanding consciousness. So just by stopping the war and looking for points of connection and uh, points of collaboration across these various disciplines and endeavors to understand human life, I think we would go a great deal further. So we're stuck with being human, but we can do a better job of that. That's what I take away from that. And um, so... I mean, I, I imagine that you have, you know, you pay attention to policy and you, you, you know, might talk to politicians and policymakers and, you know, health professionals in this area. Do you see, do you see a receptiveness to that approach? Do you see that in the wider world of, of dealing with addiction, are these messages being heard now or is this still a very uphill battle to fight? Absolutely. It's being heard. You know, I, I'm just one, I'm picking up on a, a wave that has been building for decades in a way. But it's only recently, uh, for example, that one sort of buzz buzz phrase, if that's a, a string of buzz words, is many pathways to recovery. Uh, that uh, the United States in particular, but really addiction treatment around the world, has been plagued by this one-size treatment model, uh, one-size-fits-all treatment model that I alluded to before. Uh, but even in very traditional treatment centers, uh, there, there's been an appreciation of the fact that people recover in many different ways. That uh, you know, lots of people benefit from twelve-step uh, mutual help programs, but some people don't go to them, and some people uh, are willing to accept an abstinence-based treatment, but many people are not. And you know, one statistic is that out of the uh, out of the number of people who have a substance use disorder and are not getting treatment, ninety-five percent say they don't want treatment. So what do we do with that 95%? What do we do with that vastly underserved and vast majority? If we can meet people where they are and work with them, that's not incompatible with, say, for example, an abstinence-based model. So that's just one example. Many pathways to recovery is just one specific medical example of something that I think is occurring even more broadly that outside of addiction, uh, there's so much more. Uh, discussion about mental health. There's so many more public figures coming forward and discussing problems with depression, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, Chile just uh, elected a president that has, is out as having obsessive compulsive disorder. I think that would have been unimaginable even 10 or 20 years ago. Uh, so uh, I, I think there's great cause for hope in terms of humanizing notions of mental health conditions and especially addiction. Um, that it's not an us-them problem, that this is really something that's quite pervasive and 
um, quite common in the end. It's perhaps likely that there are people listening to the podcast who either might think they're addicted or are perhaps trying not to think they're addicted or who have a family member or friend who is struggling with addiction. And I was just wondering what advice you might have for those two groups. In line with my last answer, I would say the answer is to try. Uh, the answer is to try because there are many different options and that there are um, many different pathways to help, quite a number of which are not immediately apparent, but uh, options are out there. Just to take one simplistic example, when I see a patient in my psychiatry practice, uh, first off, just to connect with medical care, because medical treatment has a great deal to offer in many cases of addiction, and we, we're vastly, vastly underutilizing life-saving medications for substance use disorder, not just for opioid use disorder, although that's the clearest example where we can save lives, but also say alcohol use disorder and others. Um, but I also say, you know, if you're going to go to a mutual health meeting, go to three because the, the first two you might not like. Uh, and that doesn't mean go to three different uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous meetings, although I think they're great for some people depending on the group, but they're highly heterogeneous. There's a, there's a, a huge and growing network of all these other mutual help movements like smart recovery, which is psychologically focused or um, explicitly agnostic or atheist groups. There are Buddhist groups, so forth and so on. I mean, uh, literally dozens at this point. And I think most people on the street don't have that sense. So um, there's a wide, 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 wide range of both clinical and mutual help, grassroots, sort of more community-based supports. Um, and the, the narrowness of thinking about addiction, I think, sometimes leads to a sense of fatalism or hopelessness. Like, I've tried sobriety. I've tried recovery. And it, it was awful for me or it didn't work for me. Well, that's okay. <coughs> while, val while validating that experience, I would say, what kind, of, what kind of sobriety did you try? What kind of recovery did you try? Uh, because there are a lot of um, explorations that we can do in what I think, again, is basically a universal quest for making sense of our limitations as a human being. Thank you. That's a very clear answer. Okay, which is time for audience questions. So uh, the tab that says Q&A is somewhere just beneath the video screen. Do tap your question into the box. Um, you can tweet to us using the hashtag IQ2. So that's just uh, the letter I and Q and the number two. And uh, yes, so someone will be monitoring that. Um, and you can tweet about the event in general using the same hashtag. So let us have a look at um, some of the questions we have got. So... Um, uh, one anonymous question at the top here is, um, oh, and it's from Fatima in Birmingham, saying that she appreciates what you say about not calling people addicts, but but do you think we're all addicted to something like smartphones? Um, especially, I mean, a lot of ways get, this gets used a lot actually in the context of smartphone use. It, it's almost it's almost trivializing the word, perhaps. What what do you think about that? Yeah, I have one example of a patient that I worked with who. <clears throat> I wanted to describe and discuss with him anonymizing his case. So I'm pausing to make sure that it respects his anonymity and disguise the appropriate details. But uh, this is a person who really struggled with porn use in the sense that he was drawn to edgy, borderline, deregulated online fora for porn. And in the process became exposed <clears throat> to really... Um, horrifying material sometimes, which in itself was a major form of suffering. Uh, 
And also because it's deregulated and online and you might be exposed to horrific things, even without intending to be, it created a major, major legal danger for him sometimes. So um, this is a person who came to me, was seeking treatment, tried out psychotherapies, tried out different medications, and still felt like he was out of control, uh, reaching for the laptop, uh, would install a number of privacy blockers and other sorts of mechanisms to stop himself from using, and then um, would... Uh, go out and buy a new laptop and then use the new laptop to uh, to engage in that sort of limit testing behavior. And so I bring up that example because I think uh, just on the face of it, that's a clear case of addiction where someone felt with all sincerity, I really want to work on this. I really feel out of control. I, I keep on acting, Helen, against what you said before, against my best interests, that even though I know the good and even though um, I truly believe in the moment it would be better not to do this thing. I'm still going ahead and doing it. That's addiction for sure. Now uh, there's a spectrum from there all the way out to it would be better not to check Instagram or Twitter when I'm hanging out with my son. There's a spectrum down to I feel a little junky when I, I, I feel a little gross when I'm on social media and it makes me feel kind of bad about myself or it takes me out of myself and I'm not like, fully present in my body. Where exactly to draw the line? I do not know. I do not know, but it reinforces this notion for me that addiction is in all of us, that uh, the things that go awry in even extreme cases of addiction are just the most visible example of an everyday ordinary struggle with uh, self-control and that sort of timeless puzzle of uh, doing things that are harmful, even though we intend not to and know we'd be better off not doing them. Thank you. We have a lot of questions here, so we might have to we might have to go for some short answers, but don't feel you have to be too short. Okay. So um, there's there's an anonymous one here. So you mentioned at the start that there's a sort of principle that you could be addicted to things in a perhaps a healthy way. You know, there are things if you're uh, I, I can't remember the example you used at the start, but well, you know there are things that society would them. see exactly. Society would see that as a good thing. So how do we distinguish between healthy and unhealthy forms of addiction if if that is a thing? Yeah, I'll try to be brief here. Uh, <laughs> I think this is a simpler one, uh, but not easy, in that um, it, it gets to a key question in today's addiction research. Uh, for decades, addiction research was very focused on abstinence and controlling use. And that was in part a function of being aligned with criminal legal interests and governmental interests. And now there's more of an interest in looking at what we call functioning. And functioning just means ask how the person is doing rather than ask how much they're using, taking our yardstick as people's actual health and their well-being. And uh, that can be a really, even in cases of individual psychotherapy, that can be a really nuanced and difficult investigation. I just think it takes wisdom, it takes discernment, and it takes people outside of ourselves to give us honest and trusted and helpful feedback. But I don't know that I could say much more than that. That's great. Thank you. So we have another question here, another anonymous one, which is very timely, which is about the impact of COVID and by implication lockdowns. You know, is loneliness a, tri a trigger for addictive behavior? Um, and have there been any other, has COVID had any other, you know, I guess it's early yet for full studies to have been done, but but what impact has COVID had on all of this? Yeah, people are still studying it. You know, one one thing that you'll see widely cited is that COVID has increased suicides. And that's not true. Helen, you might know this as a journalist, but I think most people in the public would just say, oh, yeah, more people have killed themselves during COVID. And um, it makes sense intuitively because there are other ways 
somewhat obviously, but also supported by the research that people have really, really struggled during COVID, that um, overdose rates uh, have soared. And we're seeing examples of greater incidences of alcohol-related liver problems, um, and by some measures, depression and anxiety as well. But it's complicated. It's absolutely complicated. And um, we should be hesitant, I think, to draw firm conclusions. The deeper point that uh, loneliness and isolation is a powerful trigger for problems with substances is absolutely the case and has, has long been the case in, in other uh, episodes when the forces of oppression or even just simple alienation have, uh, have worked to upset something in the f social fabric. Whenever there's uh, less cohesion, less sort of community connection and support, that, that's triggered addiction, even when people have all other sorts of material resources. Thank you. Um, so there's a question here about research, a growing field of research into the use of psychedelics to treat mental health disorders. And you're nodding as though that is, a, you, you know, this is a, these, these things touch on each other, I guess. Talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. Was there anything more about the question though? Um, well, what do you think about it? You know, do you think, are you, are you a fan, I guess, is the question? Personally, I wouldn't use it myself. One, because I am doing something else. I'm a Zen practitioner. Um, but also because I, as somebody who's experienced a manic episode and had a pretty dramatic um, uh, breakdown, basically, um, is considered to be like a relative contraindication for using these substances. And I say that because it's a caution. It's not for everyone. I, I think especially as psychedelics become commercialized, uh, they, they're sold as a panacea. And um, I, I've seen plenty of patients in my practice who have achieved remarkable, remarkable gains through the use of psychedelics, not just for substance use disorders, but also, say, depression or eating disorders. Um, people who have been involved in, say, like the New York University or the Johns Hopkins trials in, in the States. Um, but I've also seen plenty of people who have had negative outcomes as well. I... I the, the interesting thing about psychedelics for me, or one of the most interesting things about psychedelics for me, is the way that they point toward a dimension of human health and flourishing that is often missed by modern medicine. That in psychiatry, we tend to be focused on the removal of dysfunction, and psychedelics promise the opportunity for progressing even further into wellness, for understanding the self, for breaking down misguided or misleading ideas about the self and our self-identity that might be holding us back. And I think that that is tremendously useful and tremendously helpful. Uh, I think a big question, as I've been alluding to for the next, say, 10, 20, 30 years, is will business interests and industrial interests corrupt and warp the process of making psychedelics available? And there are many, many ways we could have a whole podcast on that. There are many, many ways it could go awry. Um, but, you know, I describe in the book, Era after era after era, uh, what I call addiction supply industries have um, really warped our understanding of what drugs are and what addiction is. So we, we have to be very, very careful about that. Yes. And I think that is particularly, um, it's particularly relevant at the moment as the uh, case of Purdue Pharma and the Sackler family and the consequences of the opioid crisis, particularly in the US, but in other places as well, are sort of dragging through the last bits of the legal um legal cases and people finding out what actually did happen. Um, now, audience, when I said we're, we're, uh, we, we have lots of questions, that's not to say you shouldn't add any new ones. So I just remembered I shouldn't put you off. If you've got any last questions, please do add them in. Um, so one we've got here, uh, Carla, is that 
this person says, you, you said that addiction tells us something about the human condition. Could you elaborate on that? Are we all addicted to something? And, and is that okay if we are? It's okay. And um, at least my experience has been, we have to meet it and address it and work with it if we are to grow and to change and to find peace and work with our suffering. My mind is going to something we didn't have that much of a chance to talk about, which is in the in the earlier part of the book, I talked not just about earlier people in history who've had problems with drugs or other addictive behaviors, but also thinkers who touch upon uh, this universal question of self-control. And one, um, perhaps appropriately, because he also is, is a major figure in terms of coining the notion of temperance, is Aristotle. And um, Aristotle recognizes space in between choice and compulsion. I, I think nowadays, addiction is often framed as if most supposedly normal people are walking around uh, <clears throat> making free choices about drugs or otherwise. But then once you get past a certain point of harm, your brain becomes hijacked and then you're under a compulsion. And it, it was not like that at all for Aristotle. He and other philosophers were deeply, deeply curious about this open space in between where you could still have a, an element of choice, but the choice was disordered. Uh, and so one concept of his is called weakness of will. And it's the notion that uh, people, uh, even knowing the good and even knowing it would be better not to do the thing and even recognizing the moment uh, that they're acting against their better judgment, they will still do the harmful thing. And that applies not just to addictive behavior, but it's a great, great encapsulation of addictive behavior. Uh, so, you know, we can see that with, with dieting. We can see that with um, sex and fidelity and uh, again, with status, you know, I had an addiction to uh, telling myself that I was okay via external validation before I developed a really profound symptoms of alcohol and other drug addiction. So I, I think that's that's the way that addiction, what we traditionally call extreme cases of addiction, where somebody goes away to a rehab or a treatment facility, that, that's a difference. It's a powerful and important difference, but it's a difference of degree. And not of kind. I think that's a very important message also because it prevents, it, it reduces hopefully the othering of people that this happens to, that they're somehow labelled differently or, you know, it's because of this. Um, so we've got a question here from Sam in Brighton, which goes back to something you were talking about a little while ago, saying that, you know, we've seen that opioids and sugar and other things are used to basically commercialise addiction. You know, there are people who are, there are commercial gains for them from making people addicted to things. So his question or her question is, um, their question is, do you think addiction would be such a big problem if it was just illegal to get commercial gain out of making people addicted to things? Is, is, there, is, there an, is anything like that possible? Is there, is there any way to frame a law that would actually make that possible? If the that is stamping out addiction, then the answer is no. Because I do think that there have been times... <clears throat> and I'm most familiar with the U.S., but in other countries as well, where we, we've had very sane and sensible and moderate drug control policies. One of my favorite thinkers on this topic is Mark Kleeman, uh, who coined the phrase grudging toleration, that for most of these potentially harmful products that have a hold over our desires, um, <clears throat> the, the right attitude is grudging toleration, toleration of the fact that we are going to use these substances even when they have awful consequences, but grudging in the sense that we need some dose of regulation, a totally deregulated, laissez-faire, 
um, market economy approach to potentially harmful substances is clearly out the window. We see that obviously in the case of the Purdue Pharma and the Sacklers, but over and over and over again, when stimulants were first introduced, when sedatives were first introduced, things like benzodiazepines or even earlier barbiturates. Um, but I, you know, I do think that because of the lack of appreciation of that healthy middle ground, uh, we tend to swing between these extremes of drug regulation where it's completely free season, um, you know, totally free market, unregulated, and then in recognition of harms, a swing back to complete and utter crackdowns. And at both of those extremes, we cause much more harm than good. So um, bearing in mind the lessons of the history and the way that that pendulum has swung, I think is a nice corrective and a, a nice way to recognize that we need some reasonable, compassionate, healthy dose of regulation across the board here. All these complicated things. People are so resistant to complication. Um, sort of, yes, that is built into us, I think. But we can do our best. Okay, next question here. It says, um, you mentioned social stigma around certain types of addiction. And this person remembers that most people thought Tiger Woods was lying about sex addiction and uh, just thought he got caught cheating. So the question is, how do we make people care more about addiction that isn't related to substances? You know, there's, there's such a strong, you know, in society, it's like a label that you have to be taking something to be addicted how what about the stigma and and how much people care about other types of addiction uh what's the name of that person by the way uh they they were this is anonymous question so i do know don't know Uh, okay well anonymous i just wanted to say i really appreciate and recognize the intention i hear some real deep compassion and thoughtfulness behind your question and i fully agree with that thrust that there is a lot of value to be gained from destigmatizing and being more thoughtful and compassionate about and what some people call behavioral addictions. Um, and uh, there is a very powerful strand, which I actually didn't get the, the chance to write about so much in the book that I hope to, was um, that the notion of behavioral addictions, especially around sex, has been an it, it's been a misogynistic and patriarchal oppressive force that uh, has been used to excuse men in power for generations and generations, going back to the 19th century and even earlier. So I think we do have to be very careful. And there is there is a notion of healthy skepticism. There was a time when Harvey Weinstein and Kevin Spacey were both at the same addiction rehab <laughs> and apparently like supposedly seeking treatment. Um, oftentimes in these cases, I know nothing about those cases. Um, but um, oftentimes in legal proceedings, the notion of sexual addiction is used as a way to try to get some sort of excuse or mitigation in a, in a court trial. So um, all of that is to say that I do, I do think that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very receptive to the compassion and dehumanizing impulse that I hear in that question. And also, I think it needs to be tempered um, by an appreciation of the way that ideas about addiction have been used to excuse people in power for generations. Also, regarding substances, I should say very briefly, but just that going back to um, the 1920s, setting up two-tiered systems of drug treatment, not just drug regulation, but drug treatment, where usually white upper-class people get compassionate treatment, and then others are consigned to um, criminal legal-related policies. And actually, you're very honest about that in the book that you say that when when you were suffering from addiction, you know, you had you were in an environment with doctors, you're white, you know, you have access to systems that could help you. 
Um, and by, you know, by implication, it was still very, very difficult for you. But of course, that is a privileged position to be in, in, in the modern world. Yes. In a way, so I got a specialized kind of treatment for doctors. And I think um, only by an accident of birth, only by an accident of who I am and where I wound up, not by my own virtue, for sure. Um, and if we could do something like that, where there's a careful longitudinal approach to responding to addiction, not just an acute treatment as if you were getting a gallbladder surgery, but if people were followed carefully over the course of their struggles, uh, we could do remarkably better. And that is, that's another positive thing that I could have brought up in your earlier question, Helen, that um, there's a shift away from this acute model to more of a chronic lifespan life course model for helping people with addiction. I guess for a long time, medicine has been thought, you know, perhaps when I was growing up even, which I don't think is that long ago, but maybe it is now, um, is, you know, that medicine was something that happened when you broke a bone and you went, you broke a bone and you went to the hospital and they fixed the bone and you came home. You know, it was very tidy in a way what medicine did. And I guess that that was the case. And now all of medicine is just getting more and more complicated and actually Breaking a bone is probably the simplest thing you can do to yourself now. Yes. But most of it, that's not a model for the rest of medicine, actually. It has not worked very well for mental health. And I think in a way, that's one of the original sins of the way we thought about addiction over the years is to essentialize it, meaning to make it into a thing as if it were a broken bone or as if it were a tumor and it existed unchanged throughout history because our ideas about addiction are invariably bound up in all of these issues we're talking about today. Um, so there's a question here about really how addiction treatment in different countries, I think that, you know, that in some countries, uh, how should people with addiction problems in societies that haven't medicalized the issue so that, you know, that some countries might be more inclined towards mutual aid or spiritual approaches, uh, you know, and some might be more likely to medicalize it. How does this, so I'd like to broaden out the actual question they asked is by, you know, how does this vary between different countries? Do you know much about how approaches towards this problem vary in different countries? Well, tremendously in both the incidence of addiction and then in countries' responses to it. And I, you know, I won't, I mean, we could, we, again, we could talk for an entire hour about cross-cultural understandings of addiction by itself, but there's even some evidence that between Northern and Southern Europe, People from more Protestant countries are more likely to label their problems with self-control as a medical problem uh, because in Protestant and especially um, Calvinist-influenced countries, there's such a focus on willpower and self-control. And of course, it's very, very powerful in the United States too, this notion of like the self-made man and pulling yourself up by the bootstraps and in a religious sense to um, prove your worth and prove your, your salvation through good acts. So that's just one facet of the way that we have to recognize that even our problem attribution is really bound up in our ideas about how we think the mind works and how we think self-control works to say nothing about uh, treatment. And so forth. So that's, you know, that's something I'm really interested in as well. You know, the book, like you say, focuses a fair bit on the States, although also a fair bit of the UK, because that's where we're from after all. And that's necessarily selective because that's my own legacy. And that's also the sort of global hegemonic biomedical organization that has dictated a lot of international 
addiction policy, but I think we have a lot to learn from listening to other cultures and other times approaches to the problem of addiction in all its forms. Well, I think that's a great place to finish. I'm very sorry we have to finish because there clearly is a huge amount more to discuss. So uh, for the audience, here's the book again, uh, The Urge, Our History of Addiction. Um, And thank you very, very much, Carl, for talking to us. It's been a pleasure to speak to you. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared and I'm Helen Chersky. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next, who we should have on and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our live events or peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.